Namo tasa bhagavato arhato samasambuddhasa. So just an announcement, I, I've spoken with one of the staff and they're going to contact whoever is ahead of heating to see if we can get it a little warmer in here. This may be one of the coldest Dharma talks you'll ever experience. <laughs> and so um, we'll work with the heat. I'm glad everyone's bringing blankets and taking care of yourself. So I'd like to maybe um, <clears throat> start off with a reading. And it's a poem from, by Jane Kenyon. It's called Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. <clears throat> one day I know it will be otherwise. I find that to be a very haunting poem that really speaks to me. And um, that haunting of that one day I know it will be otherwise happened when I was four years old. And I was riding in the back seat of my parents' car. And we were driving down Corey Hill Road in Brighton or Brookline. Some of you may know where that is. And riding in the back seat of my parents' car, we're going to go visit my Nana. And I had just had this realization that this was not all going to last, that I was going to die, that everyone was going to die, and that could happen at any time. And I don't know if they were even talking about that. But that was the realization that I had, and it struck out. That was a very powerful moment to realize that this is not going to last for any one of us. And I shared this out loud to my mother and father, and they very lovingly said to me, don't worry, Bobby. It's not going to happen for a long, 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 long time. I actually knew that they were um, trying to be nice to me, I didn't feel like there was ill intent, but I also knew that it wasn't the truth. Because what I knew was what I knew, that this is not going to last and there's no guarantee. And unfortunately, um, by the time I was 10 years old, I lost my brother, who I shared a room with, my best friend, who I played with every day after school. She lived across the street. She died. And then my grandfather, who lived downstairs, died. This is all within about three years. And it left me very dazed and confused, lost. And um, this went on for quite some time. And um, <clears throat> this was also during the turbulent 1960s, and the times were changing, and I was 
very, very lost. Well, I got into downhill skiing in high school and tried to apply to colleges, but no one would accept me except for one in northern Vermont. I was very happy about that. That was very close to ski areas near Burke Mountain. Linden State College was the only school that would accept me. I was glad. And great, I could go up there and ski and have a good time. My second year, I flunked out. And I was readmitted back on a warning. And my mother appealed to me to look at the course catalog. Isn't there something there that interests you? And I looked on the catalog. There was this course about the wisdom of the East. I didn't know anything about the East except for one thing. Growing up outside of Boston, and we would go to Chinese restaurants. I liked Chinese food. I loved Chinese food. I loved the artwork. I loved the taste of the food. Even the waiters and the waitresses had a different feeling than Howard Johnson's. There was something about that, the restaurants that I experienced there that was something exotic, special, colorful, interesting, and there was some type of serenity. I'd see pictures of Buddhas, and I, I didn't know what was going on, but I said, well, what the heck, wisdom of the East. I attributed it to my liking of Chinese food, and so I decided to take this class called Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. I walked into my class, and my <clears throat> professor, Bill Jackson, he was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. This was the mid-70s in northern Vermont. I had never seen a professor like this ever before in my life. Most of them suit jackets and very tight. And, and this guy was sitting on his desk in a full lotus position. And the way that he held himself and the way that he talked after a while, I realized this guy really knows something. He's embodying something. And whatever it is that he knows, I want to know what he knows. I was really, I had never met another human being like this in my life. Somebody that was walking their talk embodied, sincere, honest, kind. Well, he assigned to us the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, and I began to read uh, the Tao Te Ching, the way of life, these 81 different epigrams, and I just fell in love with the Tao Te Ching. Oh, I just couldn't believe someone thought about life in this way. It resonated so much with my thoughts about life, though I never knew anyone thought about those types of things and wrote them down, nevertheless. And then I remember coming across epigram number, I believe it is 47, where it says, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And this particular epigram really struck me deeply. And I didn't realize it right away, but in time there was a growing realization of just how lost I had been, so lost that I didn't even know how lost I was, that's how lost I was, and that if I wanted to know anything, I needed to begin to look in here. And that was a radical notion, beginning to turn to look inside. That really began my meditative journey, which is now many years ago. It led me eventually to taking more formal Vipassana retreats with my first Vipassana teacher, Dr. Rina Sarkar, who I just hold with great, uh, immense gratitude. And then her teacher that she introduced me to, to Tung Pulucero, a forest meditation master in central Burma, that I had the opportunity to 
go to Burma to ordain with him in a forest monastery for a short period of time. But having the experience of uh, living uh, the life as, as a monk. This led to inviting uh, Tampu Lucero and some other monks and some nuns, and we all, Dr. Rina Sirkar and other students, we invited them back to the United States, and in 1981 we founded uh, the Tungpulu Kabaye Monastery in Boulder Creek, California, where I lived for the next eight years, eight and a half years, practicing very intensively and serving the monks. It was this thread of that realization when I was a young boy and then losing those significant people in my life, brother, grandfather, best friend, that really called to me to, what is this life? That's what called me to meditation. And I trust for many of us here, there's a certain calling that brought us here. I mean, here we are sitting in the cold and, you know, just sitting all day, being with ourselves. This is not so easy. But this is calling. There's a beautiful uh, <clears throat> little verse from Mary Jane Block that says that she says, everything takes longer, longer than you think it should or thought it would, except your life. She's a woman with breast cancer. Everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would, except your life. What drove me to look inwards was my own sense of confusion and lostness, grief, despair. What is this life? And these were the reasons that um, Siddhartha Gautama, who, was a, he, who became the Buddha, he grew up in a palace. He was a prince, soon to be a king. And then he came across in his early adult years, actually not so early in his 29th year, he came across these messengers that awakened him to the changes of life. He came across an, an aging person, a sick person, a corpse. And when he realized that he could not escape from any of those, from aging, illness, and death, he too was catapulted into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? And the last messenger offered him some hope. This is why they're called the four heavenly messengers, the messenger of the realities that we cannot escape from aging, illness, and death. But the other messenger was someone that, was, that he came across that he had never seen a person like this before. Perhaps this was like uh, my f version of a Bill Jackson, this guy sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. Who is this guy? But he was a messenger that showed me that there was another way to live. And Siddhartha Gautama came across this messenger of a wandering ascetic that was very peaceful and the, his walk was different and he found out this was a person that was dedicating their life to his awakening. And then Siddhartha Gautama decided inside himself, this is what I want to do. So we'll hear more and more about what he discovered in this journey of awakening. But I also want to just acknowledge that for all of us here, we come here for different reasons, many of us. Going around uh, the circle 
last night, just very briefly, people sharing just a couple of words. We heard so many different reasons that brought us here, from our grief to anxiety, stress, depression, trauma, illness, pain, wanting to understand what is this life. So many of us are coming for important, sincere reasons. This is incredibly noble, incredibly courageous that we are here working on ourselves. We're looking for clarity, for purpose, meaning what is this life. We're coming here, as the name of this retreat is called, to help steady the mind and open to insight. But we also see that it's not so easy to steady this mind. I want to read you a description uh, from Bhante Gunaratana, a Selenese Buddhist monk. I want to ask if this sounds familiar. This is what he writes. Go somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way. You just never noticed. Sound familiar? I know if you looked at my mind, it's familiar. This is one of the first insights that we get when we practice mindfulness is this workings of the mind and perhaps recognizing the unsteadiness of it. In, in our training to become steady, we recognize its unsteadiness. And this is part of the practice, to be known, to be understood, to be acknowledged, not to be pushed away, but to be embraced, to be worked with as part of practice. We're coming here to investigate, to look more closely at the workings of our mind and heart. So Hafiz, a Persian poet, he says that not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. That would really do it. And that means not leaving. You better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading in there, no writing, poems, that would be cheating. The sitting is not recommended those for those who are normally sedated or who have been under a doctor's surveillance. Dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. There is a ruby buried inside here. I want to normalize for all of us that often on the first day of practice, maybe even the first couple of days, it can feel like we're in the swamp. But swamp doesn't quite feel like the right metaphor unless it's an icy, cold, freezy swamp. So maybe we'll say it's an icy, cold, freezy, swamp-like feeling. But we talk about sometimes the first couple of days is swamp-like in that you know, we've come here to steady the mind, and what do we get? This shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down out of, the, out of control. Anyways, so we're working with it. And I want to affirm, again, that this is normal. We're stopping. We're beginning to take a closer look at what's going on underneath the hood of our own body and mind. This is what we may discover, and I'm not going to generalize and say every single person is experiencing this, but my sense is that a number of us, can anybody relate? 
Yeah, yeah. This is normal. We may experience a lot of wanting it to be different, which is a great source of suffering. That's a great learning in of itself. We may have an idea that meditation should be like this, or I should be experiencing it like that. Some copacetic, nice place. We may feel discouraged. We may think of ourselves as perhaps not being made of the right meditative stuff. If I could only just do it this way. If I was only made of the right meditative stuff. So if any of you that ever get into that space of not ever feeling like you're made of the right meditative stuff, this reading is dedicated to you. So if you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, <clears throat> and if you can be cheerful and ignore aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can overlook when people take things out on you, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, you must be the family dog. So much for being made out of the right meditative stuff. At times, our expectations, our hopes, we bring these to our cushion. And it may not be helpful. At times, we can become just as aggressive sitting on the cushion as we do in our lives, sometimes known as the subtle and sometimes not so subtle aggression of self-improvement, which can be a trap. I learned long ago meditating, that my hopes and my expectations were a place that I would get caught and cause a lot of suffering and pain. And so for the most part, whenever I sit and meditate, I try to just be with what's here. Yeah, now and again, it's wishing it to be different. I'm human, I'm honest. But there's been a great degree of this lessening of the hoping and the expecting to have something be different. And we also, of course, have to be careful of what we want, as my teacher would once say, because sometimes we get it. And that may or may not be serving us. Remember in one twilight zone, I love the twilight zone. There was a guy that kind of had this complaining kind of gesture and mood and mug of just saying, you know, if everyone in the world would just be like me, this place would be a much better place. And he went to bed that night with that thought, and in the morning, everyone looked like him and was like him. That was the end of the show. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Expectations can lead to the unexpected. So what would it be like just to be here and to take what comes? Can we learn to let be, to allow, maybe even let go, though letting go is not so easy but Achan Shah, the Thai forest master, he has a wonderful little expression. He says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. Sounds good. There is some wisdom, great wisdom there.
But this is a work of a lifetime. Work of a lifetime. You know, and even here, you know, we sit at IMS, or if you go to Spirit Rock or other meditation centers, they're often, you know, on the outside looking very pastoral, very serene. But on the inside, it could be actually a different story. When I lived in the monastery, I was very young and naive then, and I thought it was going to be a peaceful place and that everyone would be nice. <laughs> and um, there was a lot of growth for me to experience at times. We bounce off each other like potatoes in a sack, getting rounder. I didn't know until much later that the monastery was what I, I actually eventually affectionately called it to be a shit accelerator. Because sitting inside the cooker, lots of things begin to arise as we sit with ourselves and with each other. Maybe even in this retreat, you're beginning to, we're rubbing up against each other. Maybe we're already falling in love with a person that we haven't even had a conversation with them. Called the Vipassana romance. Or maybe someone's not getting the food quick enough in the line and putting it on the plate and we're getting the Vipassana vendetta. We want to kill that person. So we can bounce up against each other while we're here. This is normal. Monasteries, retreat centers are places where we get cooked. Yeah, the idea is it's peaceful, it's serene. And there is those aspects there, and it's not to say there's moments where we might have moments of like, gosh, I just want to do this forever. And then within the same sitting, maybe 10 minutes later, I can't stand another minute of this stuff. Isn't that amazing? It's like the New England weather sitting with ourselves. Like, boom, it comes in, the weather fronts come in, and the weather fronts go out. And yet we're taking this on as a practice to experience this, to observe this, to see its impermanent and perhaps even impersonal nature. It comes and goes of its own accords, according to conditions. So I'd like to just name again and normalize the swamp-like experiences and to put this into a reference, that it's natural while we meditate to experience challenges. It's actually, I, actually very comforting for me that when you consult the meditation texts, there's actually texts devoted to the challenges that come up when you meditate. It's predictable. If you meditate, you will have challenges coming up. In classical Buddhism, we, they often speak of five particular challenges, sometimes known as the five hindrances. It's almost like an equation. If you practice meditation, you will experience from time to time sense desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. And maybe we'll also add on, you'll definitely experience wandering mind. Anybody's mind been wandering? Can anybody relate to the other challenges arising? Yeah. This is normal, again, predictable. So I'd like to invite us to take a closer look at some of these hindrances. So first of all, sense desire. This is when the mind says, I want it. I have to have it. Achan Amaro calls it, it's a type of quality of mind that's intoxicating and compelling. Those are very strong words, but I think we know that sense when we get hooked, grasped onto something. And we can get caught like that in our meditation. And it's a thirst that cannot be quenched. 
And it's actually rooted in some belief of deficiency that I'm not enough. And maybe something outside of me can make me whole. So sense desire is something that may arise. And as well as what may arise, of course, when there's the I want it, there's the opposite of aversion, anger, hatred. I don't want it. This too can arise. When is he going to ring that bell? Is he, did he fall asleep? Is he looking, did he looking at the clock? Uh, I don't know if I can stand another minute of this stuff. In the state of aversion mind, we're stuck, we're caught, it's rigid, it's frozen, it's tight. So we may have become familiar with that quality of mind. Another quality of mind that may arise is restlessness, as I mentioned, which I love the analogy of a pacing tiger. Also, boredom can be an offspring of that. And it's the feeling of not being settled, like crawling out of my own skin. I cannot rest in my own skin, bones, and being. It's unharnessed energy that's very intense at times. Someone this morning asked about sleepiness, or sloth and torpor, tiredness. It could be related to our own biorhythms. We're not uh, getting enough rest in this 24-hour culture of work and productivity and so forth. But it also can be related to the sense of resistance, not wanting to be here, wanting to feel nothing. So we want to investigate, too, when the sleepiness begins to occur in the body-mind. The last hindrance that we speak about is of doubt. And this one is, is something that can happen with a number of us. Like, will this meditation really help? It's helped others, but will it help me? And, you know, maybe it's, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not getting anywhere. Like, how do I measure? If I, what am I getting? So it can be some confusion when we're in a place of doubt. Sometimes we have, rather than just one of those alone, we have what I call an MHA, a multiple hindrance attack. Very uncomfortable when, and it almost seems simultaneously, you're experiencing sense, desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt all at the same time. Very uncomfortable, or any combination thereof. Very uncomfortable. One of the antidotes that we speak of in working with these challenges is awareness. My teacher, Tom Pulosero, he says, Midnight is dark. The new moon is dark. The thickness of the forest is dark. But darkest of all is unawareness. Darkest of all is unawareness. These hindrances are indeed impediments to our progress. In some sense, they continue to feed our neurotic, sometimes even narcissistic tendencies. And this perpetuates, this continues, this fuels that sense of the grasping, aversion, and unawareness. The Dharma states that there's no fire hotter than grasping. No ice colder than hatred. No fog thicker than unawareness. So again, just to normalize, since we're all working on ourselves in this very difficult and noble journey 
of awakening of our hearts and wisdom, that we will from time to time experience these challenges. And it doesn't mean that you're a bad meditator or a bad person, that these types of feelings are here. These are normal things that arise within all of us. As I mentioned, the antidote is mindfulness and awareness. Again, my teacher, Tampulo Cero, says, if you know, you're gaining knowledge. If you're knowing what's here, you're gaining knowledge. If you're knowing that you're filled with aversion or sense desire or restlessness, you're gaining knowledge. If you don't know, then you're accumulating, you're building more unawareness, more ignorance. So the operative word here is knowing. Awareness begins to set us free. This is the antidote. So when we bring our mindfulness to wanting, sense-desiring, we can see it, we can acknowledge it. It's to be known. It's to not to be denied. This is how we work with it. We examine it. How does it make you feel when you're bringing awareness, investigating, when you're in a place of wanting? And I've experimented with that at times. Sometimes I'll have this uh, attack of whether it's wanting a car, wanting this or wanting that, or wanting a food or wanting um, senses to be fulfilled in some way. And so you can just sit with it and feel it and cook with it and acknowledge it and open to it. It's like an itch that needs to be scratched so desperately, but you just experience it and observe it. And in time, we begin to see that it arises and it passes away. And we can begin to measure what state of heart and mind is more at ease, the mind that is occupied and grasped with this grasping and wanting for sense desire, or the mind that's content. It begins to become more obvious. When we see that aversion is arising in the heart, we again, we're seeing it, we're acknowledging it. We're gaining insight. We're beginning to understand that our resistance to the way things are only fuels our suffering and our pain. When we recognize that the body, the mind, the heart is occupied with restlessness, this unharnessed energy, it's to be also known, to be acknowledged, to be seen. This is what will help to steady your mind. It's now seen. It's known. When we become aware that I'm sleepy, we perhaps are discerning that I need to take rest and I allow myself to rest. Or if I need to see that I need to open my eyes, make some movement, put some cold water on my face to acknowledge what's happening here, that there's been some resistance and I just haven't wanted to feel, I can begin to bring my awareness, begin to re reflect upon what's bringing me to this practice. This clock is ticking. My sleepiness begins to subside. And doubt, doubt is also to be known, to be seen, to be acknowledged. This is doubt. Very interesting play of words. In Greek, the word utopia means nowhere. Very interesting, ironic translation. Nowhere. But if we actually, from the Dharma point of view, change the lettering around a bit, it spells now, here. Ah, that's interesting. Now, here. Maybe this is where it begins in this present moment. As we bring our mindfulness to these hindrances, these challenges, we can begin to work with them. 
If we are unaware, we begin to understand that this unawareness fuels the cycles of our suffering. When we become aware, we can begin to lessen them. We can begin to not feed this cycle of suffering. I also want to address, um, as I mentioned earlier, about wandering mind, which is another challenge that many of us will experience. And there's a very beautiful way to hold working with the wandering mind, and I want to offer you a reading from a Christian mystic and meditator. He says, if the heart, the mind wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring it back every time your mind went off, your hour would still be well employed. It's a very beautiful way of holding the practice. Even if your mind or heart wandered off every other moment, bring it back quite gently. This is a very loving way to help hold the practice. Do we want to make this a fear-based practice or a love-based practice? Why not train with kindness? Pema Children, she speaks about in training with a dog, that you, know, you can get a dog to stand, to sit up and roll over and stay. You can train it uh, with fear, and it'll do those things, but it'll also end up being kind of neurotic and confused. But in contrast, you can also equally train that dog with kindness. It will roll over, sit up, and come but it will also learn to be flexible and confident with itself. It's been brought up with love. I'd like to appeal that can we, even in our relationship to our meditation practice, hold ourselves in a kind way. And I also want to say that I believe that there's actually three benefits that we can get through working with the wanderings of our mind. And the first is that it is a training specifically on helping to steady the mind. The mind goes off, you bring it back. It goes off, you bring it back. It goes off, you bring it back. It's kind of like priming a pump. You go to the gym, you have a barbell, you're working with the weights. And through the repetition, gradually that builds the muscle mass. And so there's a certain quality of this bringing it back that begins to help prime the pump to steady the mind. And also, because we're becoming more mindful and we're beginning to see where our mind goes off to when it's wandering, we actually can actually learn about ourselves. Like, I, I'm realizing that I've been you know, feeling all day my anger or my sadness or my fear, and I wasn't even actually aware that I was thinking those things because I wasn't mindful before. So it's actually becoming mindful helps us to see what's actually going on that we don't normally see because we're usually not present. So that's another wonderful benefit. Then we perhaps can become proactive. You know, this has been something that's been really bothering me, and I need to deal with it now. The third aspect is that Working with the wandering mind can help us to recognize more what we call the mind-body connection. And what that simply means is how our thoughts and emotions are affected, affects our body. We may have realized as we've been wandering off that I'm really angry, and then I come back and see that my jaw is absolutely clenched like a vice grip. And I can begin to make the direct connection how these thoughts and emotions are affecting my body. This is very important information. 
So it's important for us as we work with the wandering mind, there's things that we can glean from, that we can benefit from, that help to steady the mind through bringing it back, recognizing where it goes off to, understanding more this connection between our thoughts and emotions in our body. Of course, when we bring our awareness and see what's going on under the hood, at first it may be unsettling, as I have mentioned. And I'd like to actually read to you another Christian mystic, Francis Fenelon, that speaks about this and the possibilities of change. He says, as the light of awareness increases, we may see ourselves to be worse than we thought. And we're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. This is Middle Ages. We never could have believed that we have harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. And we are filled with horror. But please, bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Bear in mind, for your comfort, we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. This is the power of mindfulness. We become aware we can make changes. During the Buddha's awakening, in the middle of the night, there's a very powerful story as he was meditating through the night and supposedly this uh, being called Mara, the tempter, he didn't want the Buddha to awaken and become enlightened and so he cast upon his armies, cast upon the armies of fear, like arrows were just going, like a whole squadron of soldiers shooting arrows at him and supposedly, the, you know, it's a metaphorical story, but as the Buddha saw all of the fear coming at him, the Buddha, with his eyes and heart open, just said three words, I see, I see you, Mara. And then, with, with that being seen and known, the arrows just turned into lotus blossoms. And then Mara charged on the armies of seduction. And again, the Buddha, with his heart, mind, open, said, I see you, Mara and all of the grasping of seduction just drifted away. There's great power in naming. I see you, Mara. I see you, sense desire. I see you, anger. I see you, restlessness. I see you. So I want to encourage you, when Mara comes to visit, which might be very shortly, you can greet Mara and say, Hi, I see you, Mara. And actually, the Buddha was very friendly with Mara. So Mara's not a, he wasn't an enemy. Actually, the story goes that even after the Buddha's awakening, he came to visit the Buddha from time to time through those 45 years. And every time the Buddha saw him, the Buddha invited him in and said, come, come have some tea with me, Mara. And every time Mara was seen, he'd kind of just go away. Foiled again, because he was seen completely through and through. So next time Mara comes to visit you, and it might be sooner than you think, Open up your door, welcome Mara in. It's an old teaching story from Tibet that says that a monk left a cave once and when he came back, there was all these ghosts in there. And then he was trying to get rid of the ghosts and then the more they was trying to get rid of the ghosts, the busier the ghosts got and wouldn't leave. 
The monk tried everything, but the monks just got even busier. So finally one day the monks said, all right, you guys can stay. And then they all left. There's nothing to keep them there anymore. I see you, Mara. So I invite you to work with Mara. Mara is the reminder to become present again. And the beautiful thing about this practice of mindfulness is that the moment that you realize that you are not present, you are. It's that close and yet that far. This is it. And this is where we live our lives. We may think, of course, as we're noticing in our mind, that we're off in the future rehearsing or off in the past rehashing. But where the rubber meets the road is in the here and now. This is where our life is lived in this moment. And we're beginning to bring our energy into the present moment because this is where it is. And one thing that I want to say is an act of compassion and kindness. Once you recognize that you have not been mindful, and now that you are, there's no need to blame yourself about where you were because you can't even do anything about that. But what you can do is you're back again in this moment. There's everything you can do about now. So can we begin to even in this way, not, oh gosh, look, I'm such a bad meditator. I was all over. Never mind. I'm back again. How about celebrating the fact that I'm back again and I can begin right now again? So I really want to encourage the sense of training with kindness. This is a very noble path, the path of awakening, and it's also very difficult. But I also think in some ways, what else is there to do? Franz Kafka once said, you know, there's suffering, and you have your choice on whether you want to deal with it or not, but if you don't, you get two sufferings. So perhaps efficient to awaken on this path. So may we grow with compassion for ourselves and for others. May we work with allowing whatever emerges in our experience as part of our practice. So in speaking about allow, I want to offer you a nice reading from Dana Falls. Just love. It's called Allow. It says, there's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt. Try contain a tornado. Dam a stream and it'll create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. And when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. Practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. May we trust our hearts. May we cultivate kindness. May we see more clearly into what fuels our suffering and the paths to its lessening. This is how we work with steadying the mind and opening to insight. No doubt we're giving you the practices of the mindfulness of breathing or other meditation objects, and they're like tools 
tools to help us to see more clearly the nature and the workings of our own mind, of where we get caught in the pathways to more freedom. And a tool, I'll say, because a wrench is only useful when it tightens things up. So it's not just the breath. It's, our, it's, it's what's, what's going on inside us. The breath is here as a tool to help to steady the mind so that potentially we can begin to see more clearly where we cling, where we have aversion, where we are not seeing clearly. As we steady this mind, we will begin to see more clearly. We'll begin to understand the causes that fuel our suffering and pain. And again, as I mentioned, this pathway to its lessenings. So I'm going to um, just end with one last reading. This is from a meditation teacher in Australia. His name is Bob Sharples. And he describes a very beautiful way of holding ourselves. So I really want to appeal for us in these tender moments that we are with ourselves, can we begin to hold ourselves with greater compassion? So he writes this. He says, don't meditate to fix yourself, to heal yourself, to improve yourself, to redeem yourself. Rather, do it as an act of love, of a deep, warm friendship to yourself. And in this way, There's no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement and for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers a possibility of an end to the ceaseless rounds of trying so hard that wraps our lives in a knot. Anybody relate to that? Wraps our lives in a knot. How about meditation as an act of love? I'll mention this at times, and people go, yeah, right, let's just get to the meditation. But then sometimes people actually pause for a moment and actually consider it, open to it. So I invite you to open to it. Let's sit for a few minutes. What would it be like to open to a place where you are enough, completely and perfectly perfect as you are in this moment? There's nothing more that you need to get or push away. Can I just open into this great heart of compassion? I open to compassion for myself, just as I am. 
May I be open to those that I care about. And to all beings, may all beings dwell with peace. So thank you so much, and we'll just take some time for another walking practice or drinking tea as you like, continuing with our mindfulness, and um, we'll have our last sitting when you hear the bell. So while, while we're all here, just to let you know that uh, on the bulletin board, there is announcements for um, the interviews tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.